0: Welcome back to The Bridge Podcast. And before we we dive into this episode with our special guest, I'm going to start doing a tad introduction before we get into the episode, just to give you guys some background of who the person is and, and what they do. And I had the privilege to interview Dr. John Dugan. And he's going to be upset that I called him Dr. Dr. Dugan in this. But John is a friend and mentor of mine. That I actually connected with this past semester and he wrote the leadership book that my class read for multicultural leadership and after reading his his work I realized that I had to have this guy on the podcast and he was everything I I could think of and more and we talk about a plethora of things so I'm excited for you guys to to listen to this. John's the executive director at Aspen Institute, and he's co-founded one of the largest international studies of leadership outcomes. His research has over 50 publications, and he's had full professorship at Maryland University. And yeah, this episode was awesome because we dived, we dove into his life and this idea of his purpose in life and the role of mentorship, and playing with like, the theory of potential, and what you're meant to do on this on this earth, and going going with your gut and doing things that are fearful. And this idea of your diverse experience leads to creative solutions as well. We talked about the role of leadership in companies today. And the role of values and how to be an effective leader and much more. So I'm excited for you guys to dive into this episode. And without further introduction, we will get into this episode. And just reminder that I love you guys and I appreciate you and enjoy. Peace. Welcome back to the Bridge Podcast, everyone. I'm just super grateful that you're here today. And if you're listening, I really appreciate you. And today we have a really special guest. Um, yeah, super special guest. And I'm super excited to introduce him. But before we do that, it is episode 87. We are chugging along with the episodes. It's crazy how time is flying. And the quote of the day is actually from when our guest came into to one of my classes. And he said that you're your diverse experience leads to creative solutions. So I'm going to say that one again. Your diverse experience leads to creative solutions. So without further ado, I would introduce this guy, but he does too many g- cool things for me to get them all right. So, uh, Ms. Dr. John Dugan.
1: Hey, everyone. Uh, Dr. John Dugan, no one calls me doctor. <laughs> not my family, <laughs> not the students I used to work with, so... It's just John, um, which is clearly like a throwback to Jack from Will and Grace, uh, sure. embarrassingly so, but uh, so pleased to be here. I am uh, the Executive Director of Youth Leadership Programs at the Aspen Institute, which is a global nonprofit, and previously was a professor for years at Loyal University Chicago and worked at uh, University of Maryland as well and a uh, true Chicago native, grew up on the south side of the city here and Chicago has my heart. It's it's my uh, place that I love and do a lot of time investing in and exploring and um, says a lot about who I am as a person.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah and actually the how John and I connected was through my leadership class and we actually read his book that he wrote which was awesome. And it was all about cultivating critical perspectives on, on leadership. And it was very eye-opening to see this, this definition of leadership change throughout my own life and through the work that I've been doing. So do you want to talk a little bit about like your process of what leadership is or even how it plays a role in your own life?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Gabe, I'm just glad that you didn't fall asleep reading. It. <laughs> That's like the best possible endorsement. <laughs> I, I had, I, I, I remember, I actually, um,
0: I enjoy reading for pleasure a lot. And I remember from your book, I was reading it and I saw something super powerful. I can't remember what it was, but I took a picture and put it on my Instagram. And I said, I don't normally like reading for school, like what I'm required. And I was like, but this really resonated with me. So I thought it was funny you brought that up.
1: Yeah, we should talk at some point about like the process of writing and, and how strange it is. Um, but let me just give you a sense of, of the book. So first and foremost, the book is not just a product that, that I wrote and designed. It was really the labor and efforts of a large group of folks over about three years. So with this particular book, what we wanted to do was really scan all of the existing research, all of the existing theory, as it relates to leadership. So we looked across disciplines from nursing, to engineering, to psychology, public policy. Mm -hmm. And we took the most prominent theories and then began to pull them apart to say, okay, what have we learned about these theories over time?
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: How do we put them back together to make them stronger and more effective? And are there some that we just have to sort of let go of or move on from because perhaps they don't have the same resonance that they did in the past, or maybe they don't work. And Mm. research has found that, but we still keep using them. And for me, you know, that is what leadership is about, that process of mindset and how you come to Mm. understand and make meaning of the world. Uh, I fundamentally believe that leadership at its core is the sense that we make of it. So how you understand leadership is a product of how you're raised, where you're raised, uh, all of the things that you come into contact with that begin shaping that. And so we come to the world with a sense of what leadership is, and then theory gives us a way to message test, where mm-hmm. we're playing with that theory if we're, if we're positioning it not as truth, but as a potential lens on the world. And so that's what I love about leadership and the concept of leadership theory is that we all have our own starting point. And if we can figure out where each of us are at on a map in terms of how we understand this, then we can really start getting to figuring out how do we work together? How do we solve the most critical problems in front of us?
0: Yeah. And I think that brings up a great point with your own background and creating this like your own definition of leadership. Because I mentioned it when we spoke before, but um, looking at my parent, my mom and my grandparents, like empathy is their biggest thing. If anybody knows my mom, I will say till the day she dies, like she is too nice to people, you know, like she will go out of her way for people. But That's something that I found in my own leadership is having the sense of empathy and also realizing that I can't fully empathize with everyone. And I think that is something that's really important as well. Like I can try my best to put myself in somebody's shoes, but at the end of the day, I truly can't put myself in some people's shoes and letting people know that I can't do that, but I'll be of support of them in whatever role I have is super important.
1: That is so well said. And what I love is that you're differentiating between empathy and sympathy. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think we think we're practicing empathy, but what we're really doing is practicing sympathy for all the right reasons, but then it comes out different and it reshapes the relationships. Mm-hmm. I also love that you're sort of putting that as core to who your mom is and who you are. I think you know the difference between you know, walking in someone's shoes is that you, you're really not them. And mm-hmm. so to your point, you never really understand the full nuance Uh, I think sometimes even the people who are closest to us don't ever fully, truly understand what we're going through. Uh, and that's maybe the challenge of how do we bridge that difference? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So do you want to talk about how your own experience has led to the way you live your life, the way you approach your
1: career and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I grew up on the, like I said, the South side of Chicago, uh, I come from a huge family like our family is so large we used to have to do cousin checks (laughs) so the Dugan, Broderick, Conley, uh, Murphy crew is just so large like my sister accidentally once went on a date with a second cousin and (laughs) thank goodness they didn't kiss. Uh, There's a whole family history of there's so many of us that we just have to check. Uh That story is really illustrative of of my family. So you have your immediate family, but then you have these circles. And Mm. so you start to lose the differentiation of who's a first cousin, who's a second cousin, what's their role in your life. And, you know, I was super blessed. I grew up with a family that, um, our, my grandmother, you know, she lived until she was 104 and a half, immigrated from Ireland under lots of duress. Mm-hmm. And she was like how you described your mom in terms of empathy, the most compassionate, empathetic person I've ever met. And as sort of like the matriarch of the family, I think that really shaped all of us. Uh, she was quick to correct if, if we said something that was perhaps unkind or mean. And she always did it in the kindest, most compassionate way. And so there's so many lessons that I learned there. I think my faith uh, has also played a huge part of it. I went through 16 years of Catholic education. (laughs) and you don't do that much Catholic education, then teach at a Catholic institution, Mm -hmm. not absorb some of the best parts of of the the Catholic tradition. And so that sense of how do we make a better world? What is justice? Mm. The first time I was ever asked what is justice was through Catholic. Catholic social doctrine and mm-hmm. religious education. Now, for me, I'd, I'd say I'd, I've become more spiritual and less religious tied to an institution. But that frames how I think about leadership, what I mm-hmm. think my purpose and vocation in the world is. And then I'd say the third thing that's really you know, shaped me is what does it look like to try and find opportunity when you don't have sort of a map or even a compass? So I was really lucky. My my parents stressed the importance of education, but they weren't really sure how to get me into college. Um, We certainly didn't have the money for it. And so having to learn how to hustle and make things work and figure out how am I going to stay in school semester to semester, uh, the luck luck and privilege of encountering really Mm. wonderful faculty who, when I thought I had to drop out my freshman year, were like, nope, you're going to stay in. Here's how we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, I have had all these wild adventures. Like, you know, I I was enrolled in the army and ROTC as a means to get to school. I'm like the last person who should probably be admitted to the army. Like I am a total dork. I have like zero physical prowess. I... (laughs) you know question everything so i think i drove them absolutely nuts in the, in that process but that that need to hustle to figure out how do i stay on a track that i'm told is going to get me somewhere and you need but you're not really sure what that end product looks like mm. certainly informed it and then the last thing i'll just share is i had a number of experiences throughout my life particularly around race that were so important so mm. My mom uh, was a school teacher, sixth grade teacher in uh, a a predominantly white community that was um, relatively poor. And then my dad was working in Chicago, in Chicago public schools, predominantly in black and Latino neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so we would have these fascinating kitchen table conversations about what are the common denominators of poverty, but how does that look different because Mm. of, of, of race and where someone's position. And so all of that began to shape how I thought about race. Then you go to a place like John Carroll, that is like the whitest of white spots in America. And I'm like, whoa, (laughs) like this is less diverse than my neighborhood, my school. Um, and that shock was really interesting and absolutely shaped how I think about the world. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I think there, there was a ton to unpack right there. A lot of golden nuggets. Um, But I think what you mentioned about like having conversations about race, and I think that's what um, the multicultural leadership class that I took last semester really taught me to do is not to shy away from the conversation, even if it's uncomfortable to talk about the things. Something that I live by is to talk about the things that aren't talked about. Having a podcast and eventually I want to write my own book. I'm in the process of doing that. Um, but to talk about the things that aren't talked about, because those things need to be to be brought to light and to simply be talked about. And I think it's really important to know that we talked about this concept of saying the wrong thing mm-hmm. and worrying about that. But th- I think the important part is putting yourself in the position to have the uncomfortable talk and understanding that you might be corrected but that's learning, you know?
1: That, I mean, that is such a huge insight. And, you know, as a white guy doing this work for decades now, you know, it strikes me that, one, we have to unveil and shed light on things that we don't talk about. So I love mm-hmm. how you position that game. I think when you add light to the equation, oftentimes you see things you've never seen before and it mm-hmm. leads to connections you never imagined possible. and. The only way to do that is through risk. Now, I'm always aware that for me uh, as a white guy doing that, the risk is much less. There's a a beautiful piece of video and poetry um, that I saw years and years ago. And in it, the person says gets asked, as a woman of color, what's it like to have white friends and engage in dialogue with white people? And I'll never forget it. So they show this image as she's talking and she says, look, for me, I'll always do it because that's the way we solve our problems. But you have to realize when I come into a conversation with a white person, I bring with me all of the hopes, all of the fears, all of the anxiety Mm -hmm. of the shards of broken glass that are my past experiences. Mm -hmm. And it's like crawling on my hands and knees across that glass With the hope that this person isn't going to cause harm Mm -hmm. and in that visual image is what i always carry with me knowing that i got to stay humble i have to stay centered in an ethic of care and most often you know i'm going to screw up Mm -hmm. but it's how we rebound from that and i think there's such a difference when we enter these conversations between entering it with a willingness to make mistakes but not cause harm versus uh, a disregard for the harm that could be caused. So if we enter a conversation and I'm not thinking about what is all of this person bringing with them, then I'm not seeing the full person. And like you said to start, we can't always know everything and there's a difference between empathy and thinking that we know fully someone's experience. Um, So what I try and do is parallel empathy in this which is I try and think about the experiences I've had where I've been hurt or disappointed and use that as a lens to try and understand.
0: Yeah, um, I was just writing that down that it reminded me of the danger of a single story. Have you ever seen that Ted talk?
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and also growing up in Catholic, going to Catholic high school, they showed us the danger of a single story. And using, like really using that approach when having these conversations is very important. And I'm curious, how do you approach those conversations um, realizing that you might say something that you think is um, truth, but it doesn't turn out to be that way?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's all about humble generosity. And I try and think of that not as my generosity, but the generosity of anyone I'm engaging with. So if you take race out of the equation, anytime we're interacting with someone and they're generous enough to share their story or engage and go to a place that's vulnerable, like imagine sitting and, you know, you're having a beer with a friend and they start to disclose about a problem in their relationship. Mm -hmm. I try and take that same experience of how I would show up if I misinterpreted a part of their story, if I critiqued, you know, let's say the person they're in a relationship with and apply that. For some reason, I think we don't apply it in the context of cross-racial interaction, Mm cross-gender interaction to the same degree. We simplify it to, oh, this is an issue of race. And then that's an immediate impediment and roadblock. Mm -hmm. By trying all of those same human dynamics um, in those conversations. And there's never been a time where Uh, I haven't screwed up, to be honest with you. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, there's the major screw ups where you just beat yourself up for weeks because you said something so stupid. But usually it's not because someone else is punishing you. It's because we're punishing ourselves
0: Mm -hmm. and we got
1: to let go of our own ego in that. So, you know, I had a professor early on in my career say, you know, when when you're talking about any type of difference. Uh and there's a critique, it's often not about you, it's about the broader group, but we're so enculturated to individualism in the US that we default and we think it's about us. So our mm. ego becomes so fragile. So you know, to me, if you wanna take it out of the context of race, it's an ego check. Like if you were training in a gym and someone said, you're screwing up your deadlifts, you're, you're you're messing up, um, you're, the group is not coming along because you're holding us back. Would you push yourself to do better? Or would you say, no, this is about you? I'm out of here. Mm. And you know, the hope is that we would push ourselves to do better. So I try and adopt that mindset as much as possible.
0: I think that's a great, a great mindset and just towards anything in life is simple it down and relate it to another experience. Like the gym, the gym example related so much to me with, you know, maybe I'm at the gym and Sam, my brother, is like, hey, Gabe, you're doing this wrong, like do it this way. And I'm like, all right, you know, I'll do it. But do I have that same approach to a conversation about race or a conversation that is not talked about? And I think that's a great approach to take to to all of those.
1: Gabe, I'm so curious, if you had to guess or speculate, why do you think that is? I think,
0: I'm going to take a pause before I answer this one. That's good. That means you're really thinking about it. I like that. <laughs> I think it's just, it comes from like being too hard on yourself. And I'd say judgmental. Um, and it's the, the fear of change. I think change and everything is fearful. Yeah. But the fact that it's, you know, with the gym, it's something I do every single day And with practice, you become better, right? So I think with these conversations as well, with practice, you come better. Like, yes, it might be uncomfortable the first time, the second, but as I keep putting myself in this position, in this dialogue, I think that's how you, you get better. It's like working out a muscle. And when you continue to do that, you become stronger, better. And yes, you might mess up a few times, but eventually it'll come along.
1: And you recover faster, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I I know in other parts of my life, uh, so I, I used to be a runner. I am no longer a runner since COVID. I have got to get back to running. I do adventure races. and stuff. Um, I would take corrections from my sister, for example, who just, I mean, she is like an athlete and Jerry would correct me and I would take that course correction so easily. But then I was started realizing why is it that in certain conversations, I won't take that course correction. Mm. And what does that say? Is is there like a superiority complex? Do I feel like I can only learn from certain people? And then when you start going down that slope, I had to really unpack a whole bunch of stuff that was playing out in my head around why am I more inclined on certain topics or from certain people to integrate feedback versus others? So, I mean, that's the challenge, how do we find a place and space to receive feedback, not internalize it as I'm a bad person mm-hmm. and then course correct in the future um, and know that, that that's the goal of all of this work.
0: Yeah, and I think also the, the realization that when you're being critiqued and getting feedback, it's coming from a stance of, of love and care for that person to eventually create the, a better world like the ripple effect, you know, change one person, they'll change another, and next thing you know, we have this world that is doing things out of love and kindness and things like that.
1: Yeah, and I mean, one of the biggest gifts we can get is po- is is not just positive feedback, but critical feedback. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a supervisor once who all I got was positive feedback. And I realized I stopped taking any advice from this person because there was never anything to improve upon, which actually eroded my trust because I know I'm a flawed person. Mm-hmm. I know that I, I have character flaws, I have things I'm working on that I'm conscious of, things that I, I should be working on that I'm not conscious of. And so when you get no feedback and it's all positive all the time, I start to become suspicious of the intent. Like, are, are you helping mm-hmm. me to be a better person and reach my full potential? Or are you just not investing? And I do think sometimes that can just be a personality trait where someone is so uncomfortable with feedback. But I also think feedback can be the greatest gift you get from someone because it means they actually care enough for you to be a better person either in that moment or with other people later.
0: Mm, Yeah. And I think what you just said right there is also self-awareness, which is something that was key. And I remember it kept popping up in, in the book we read over over the last semester of, you know, turning inward to find the answers rather than outward. You know, if I can turn inward and love myself, how much easier is that if I'm a CEO of this company to do that to my, to my employees, my followers and things like that.
1: Yeah. And I think sometimes we, we create these false dichotomies. So we say there's um, strong and then there's weak, but what if Strength comes out of acknowledging our weakness and wanting to grow in a mm. particular place. Um, there's good and bad. Um, there's you know authority and there's follower. Uh, and we have all these false dichotomies when the world is really all of those things. As an executive director, one of the hardest things for me was to move out of a faculty role where all I would do was use influence to try and shape things. So as a faculty mm. member, you can influence your students and you can influence your peers but you really have no control beyond the tip of your nose. Everything ends at the tip of your nose because you can't control other people and you have no authority to say you must do X um, with your faculty colleagues. And so I think that helped me really realize as an executive director, I can't lead with influence. I actually have to use some of my authority, which is uncomfortable at times, Mm -hmm. but actually probably healthier for the organization. that gets into a whole different bucket of questions about what does it mean to actually do this work in practice versus just write a book about it yep yep and that's
0: what we we talked about during uh our zoom call when we had it um i know you just touched on how when you had this switch from when you went from a faculty to the executive director and i have in my notes i was taking notes while you were talking i remember when it started off i was like oh my gosh this guy's saying so much good stuff and i like scrambled for my notebook but um, you had a mentor that said when you were switching over, like, you're crazy, don't switch over, stay in. And how did that role play into deciding to change? Yeah, I mean, that,
1: this was fascinating because the Aspen Institute came and I had been working with them for a year doing evaluation of their programs. And so I really fell in love with the organization. At the same time, I had built this career in academia where... The gold standard is tenure. So I, I didn't just get tenure, but I had been promoted from assistant to associate to full professor. So to be you know, 39 years old and a full professor with a clear research plan, the ability to continue to produce research articles, loving teaching at a university that allowed me to both invest in my teaching and my research and not one over the other was really where I wanted to be. And so I had to, when the offer came through, I had felt for a while, some rumblings. Like if I been at teaching for so long that I've forgotten how to do, mm. uh, or I'm losing touch with what it means. So you're writing about leadership theory or practice and you're not actually practicing it outside of the bubble of higher education. And it's not that the bubble isn't great, but the work for me was always about how do you move something on the ground? So I had this sort of internal rumbling about like, am I a fraud? Am I no longer the person who should be teaching these things? And then, you know, I think my mentor was like, whoa, I mean, you could go just about anywhere in the country. If you wanna change, why would you change fields? I mean, this sounds like an awesome opportunity, but to get full professorship and give that up Mm -hmm. at your stage in your career is insane. And so I think for me, she you know, she wasn't the only one who said that. Many other people echoed that sentiment. Uh, and for me, it was more vocational calling. Mm. Like I was so restless on the inside and I knew if I didn't respond to that, I might become resentful. I might stop driving in the way that I needed to. And in my life, and as we're talking about this, I'm sort of like realizing some of this gave so huge appreciation to you because I don't think I've made this connection before. When I've made major decisions in my life, I realize it's because I have more questions than answers that I can resolve in that position. And that's happened multiple times. And so I think that led to the jump, which was, if there's more questions than answers here, I got to find a place where I can answer those questions. And then a huge part of it is, you know, I got to trust in God, I've got to trust in the people around me, I've got to trust in the relationships I have, that if this is a wrong decision, then I can course correct, and I can move back into another space. Um, And if it's the right decision, it might lead me down a a path that I had no idea about.
0: Mm, I love that. And I think it all started with wrestling with those questions, reflection, and seeing, asking the question of what do I want? And then breaking it down again, like what do I really want? And what do I really, really want? And it was like your purpose at the bottom of that when you kept on peeling it back. And now- I think that's super powerful as well as a college student and seeing my, my peers and things with, you know, deciding a major, it's the biggest thing in the world, right? But it's like, no, like, try, try some things out. If, if it doesn't work out, be flexible, you know, maybe I'll try this out. And you never know, you, you don't know what you don't know, right? And, sure. and sitting in, in there having regret is something that I think a lot of people you know, do so much, but it's, it's like, Hey, it's okay to, to change your mind. It's okay to be flexible and understanding that yes, it sounds self selfish that this life is about you, but it truly is about, about you and you being
1: you. I think there's a huge power in recognizing that and that, you know, there is no one path. There's multiple Mm -hmm. paths and they diverge. And the goal is to figure out how you, you follow that at the truest core of what you wanna do with your life. You know, if we only get this one life, the question is, what are you gonna do with it? But my my grandma asked that question all the time, what are you doing with your life? And she never meant like, did you get this degree? All of these external sort of rewards. It was, what are you doing at your core? Like, are you happy? Are you trying to be a better person today than you were tomorrow, and uh, than you were yesterday? And I think that that really animates a lot of it. And look, like I, I I sort of always bristle at like when we make some decisions more important than others, at any moment in our life, whether it is choosing a major or it is choosing like, am I gonna take this internship or this internship? Am I gonna go home and take a semester off and care for my family because I've got a sick parent? Every one of those decisions feels major and it should because you're making a critical, diversion in the woods potentially. Mm-hmm. So that path, you're choosing perhaps the one that isn't the most obvious in that moment. And that should feel weighty and heavy. Uh, if it didn't, I'd worry people were coasting through life or not thinking about the consequences of, of what they're doing. You know, Gabe, I, um, I think that in this conversation, this is what for me leadership is about. It's, a co- it's being able to get to these meaning of life existential questions create in a short amount of time, a level of vulnerability and candor with someone where you can have a conversation like we're having right now. Like you and I don't know each other deeply, but we connected over some shared big meaning of life questions. And here we are having this conversation right now. This is what I wish we could do in society to to actually to build that connective tissue between people. Mm,
0: Yeah. And I think you just bring up a great point of the strength of vulnerability. And it's something one of Brene Brown talks about it a lot. She's one of one of my mentors that I look up to. But just being vulnerable with people and looking at it as a strength rather than a weakness, I think is so important. And I think at the end of the day, that's what connects us human being is having this, this shared. You know, maybe a shared suffering through something, yep. and that's what helps us get through that.
1: I think that's beautifully sad. Beautifully sad. Well, Doctor Dugan, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> literally, be the only person, game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want to be conscientious of your time. I know you're a very busy person. I'm really appreciative for for you coming on the podcast. But if there's one thing you could leave the world with, or Whoever's listening to this, what would it be? And if you want to take a few beats, do that, you know, and uh, yeah, we'll go from there.
1: This is, you know, like the tough question because there's the leadership answer that's really functional. There's the meaning of life answer. So I'm going to go with the, the, uh, an answer that probably fits this, this conversation we've had today. Um, We are all, on journeys that are so completely unknown to us, it's like we're bumper cars bumping into one another in life. And the best, I think, most wise investment we can make is to really invest in that connection between and among people. At the end of the day, um, I had asked my grandma when she said she lived 104 and a half at 97 or 8, I asked her, what's one thing you knew now that you wish you knew when you were my age?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And she said two things, one, which informed an entire book I wrote, was you have to learn how to take critique because sometimes, it's not always, but sometimes in that critique, you'll find an element of truth that you didn't see for yourself. Mm. Sometimes in critique, you'll find an element of truth you didn't see in yourself. Whoa, Graham, Mm -hmm. wow, I'm still trying to make meaning of that today. And the second thing she said is that there's nothing more valuable than the relationships that we choose to hold dear. And so, to find those relationships and to create those relationships with one another is perhaps the best example of leadership that we could take on in our lives. Because it's that those relationships that will hold us true to ourselves, true to one another.
0: Mm, that was beautiful, and I think it's just awesome to to think of like these huge concepts of leadership and being in higher education, and then it just boils down to, to relationships. And it's something we all have the capability to work on every single day we wake up on this earth. We have the blessing to wake up, right? That's right. I love that. Well, it's been an awesome episode. If you guys are still listening, I appreciate you again. And uh, I'm grateful for you listening. I also want to recognize you, John, for for chasing your dreams and like the work that you do. And I really appreciate you and just want to take like a moment to honor you
1: for the things that you do. Oh, so. Thank you. <laughs> it feels totally undeserved, but I will uh, embrace the feedback because <laughs> sometimes it's not just critique. It's good stuff too. So thank you, Game. So impressed with you. So impressed. Thank you. All right, everyone. Episode 87. There it is.